0: Hey everyone, my name is Pastor Dina and thank you so much for joining us for Northeast Christian Church Online Services. Please be sure to subscribe to NECC on all social media platforms to keep up to date with all that's going on here in our church. Also, if you would like to rewatch today's sermon, you can look us up on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcast. Well, thank you and enjoy the rest of service.
1: Thank you very much, Mary Evelyn. Well, before we dive into God's Word today, I'm going to invite the ushers forward, actually, and uh, there's some clipboards here I want you guys to pass out. If you're a man, we have man camp coming up, and we call it such, at least they call it such, because men don't retreat. We camp, I guess. But uh, it's, it's fun. It's a really good time. If you're a guy, we eat a lot of food. There, are, there is a limitless, literally limitless amount of food, coffee, coffee bunch of fireside chats, we play a bunch of games, archery tag, throw hatchets, shoot guns, grow extra chest hair, it's amazing, you should sign up. But if you want a little more info on it, please, as those clipboards, you guys can go ahead and start passing those. As they come around, just put your name down. We'll reach out to you. We'll get you the info you need. You won't want to miss it. It's fun every year. It's from November 4th to the 6th. It's that weekend. We spend a lot of time just hanging out. And you know, I find in church, this is a good place to have your faith built, but it's not always optimal to have your relationships built. And so we want to provide the space and the place for you to change your perspective and your surroundings a little bit, so that you can get to know the people around you a little bit better, and play games with them, have fun with them, listen to worship music, but only manly worship music, right? Kind of makes you go, poof. Anyway, so please sign up, you're going to enjoy it, it's going to be a good time, and you won't want to miss it. I also uh, want to reiterate uh, what Pastor Dina said about keeping Nelson, Sandy, and others in our church impacted by the times we're in, in prayer, uh, they need it and we want to make sure that we continue to remember them in prayer. So uh, as we do, I'm going to open up this time in God's Word, and I'm going to open us up in prayer for them. God, would you just meet us here today? I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would be manifest and glorified, God, and that you would provide the needs of your people, whether it's healing in the body, protection, rebuilding, uh, natural disasters. God, we face all sorts of things. We are crushed, but we are not destroyed, as as, uh, the Apostle Paul says. And I just pray today, God, that your Holy Spirit would lift your people, both in this Word and across this world, in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I also want to say I am tired. I got back from Six Flags with the youth yesterday. I had a 12-hour day with teenagers at a theme park. But it was worth it. It was a good time. There was one youth who had never been there, and uh, Monica asked him when he got off the roller coaster, did you like it? He goes, like, I loved it, (laughs) and then proceeded to go on it like four more times. So we will be going to uh, Six Flags next year. Kwame, uh, you might be at home because uh, you missed out and had COVID, and I want you to know if you're watching, we're going next year, buddy, so don't worry about it. But they had a good time, and I'm glad to be here today. If you don't know me, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm delighted to be able to open God's Word for you. Uh, I'm obviously not Pastor Paul. He's taken a well-deserved break for his birthday. So make sure you wish him a happy belated birthday the next time you see him, and and just bless him in some way. Today, we're going to be taking a break from our sermon series on the book of James. We teach through books of the Bible usually, because we want God's Word to provide the template for what we're usually saying from the pulpit here. Pastors aren't all-knowing, authors don't know everything, and big shocker, politicians don't have the answer to all the world's problems, but God does because He's all-wise, He's all-good, and He's all-redeeming, and so we spend time listening to His Word to find those answers. Today, we're still going to listen to His Word, but sometimes in the life of a church, and during certain cultural moments that we feel as your shepherds, it's important to stop and address certain topics and issues. And we're always going to base our teachings on the scriptures, but sometimes we need to take that extra step and see how the scriptures are immediately relevant to our modern world. I've spoken to the youth on this topic, but I think it's appropriate that you guys in here have time to consider it as well. And I want to give a warning, just a content warning on today. This uh, teenagers might be able to handle this, but I don't think children will. And so if you have children, I would encourage you. We have great children's ministries uh, to place them in to teach age-appropriate content. But today's a hard topic. And so I, I just want to speak that from the forefront. And, and to, to kind of illustrate that, I want to begin with a story. Uh, once upon a time, there was a different Dylan. And I know it's hard to imagine, but I was even skinnier, younger, but just as handsome as I am today. <laughs> When I was in high school, I was different in a lot of ways from what I am now. Uh, I was a hot-headed, progressive debater. I loved the writings of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and Marx, and I viciously debated anyone in history, English, or economics class. I wanted to politically change the world. I was in advanced placement in psychology and history and English and science. I was intelligent and proud of it. I had a friend whose name I'll leave private. She was transitioning to be a man, and I was a defender of everyone I felt was disadvantaged in the world. I cared for them and wanted to defend this friend. I remember one day after a heated debate with a Catholic student in psychology class, this friend came up to me and thanked me for speaking up for people like them. It was just a year or so later that I became a Christian, and I was forgiven by God. His spirit now lived within me, and, but many of you know that nothing changes quickly. And as many of us do with our sins, I simply baptized the vicious debating tongue instead of crucifying it. I became the campaigner for all things righteous, holy, family values, morality, and the list goes on. I carried around my obnoxiously big apologetic study Bible around college campus. I debated professors on the nature of ethics, and as any fool would, I made sure the whole world of Facebook knew what they should believe. Naturally, this included the hot debate around gender identity issues. I wasn't malicious, I just had zeal without knowledge. My friend saw my social media tirades and perhaps I communicated that I was more willing to win arguments than win people. Uh, This person eventually said they were ashamed to ever call me their friend. And it was just a few months later that they took their own life. Words have impact. So much so that God calls himself the word in John chapter 1. And my words were more concerned with being right than being helpful. I think about my friend often and it's a reminder for me that life is fragile. How you speak to people will provide more fertile soil for the gospel than being only concerned with what you speak to people. As Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice in Matthew chapter 9. According to the CDC, the second leading cause of death among Americans ages 10 to 34, that's a huge gap, 10 to 34, the second leading cause is suicide. There's a suicide every 11 seconds. In 2020, 46,000 people in the United States alone ended their own life with veterans, Americans in rural areas, workers in construction, and teenagers identifying as lesbian, gay, or bisexual being the most affected by this. Worldwide, it's the fourth leading cause of death, with 77% of suicides being in middle- to low-income households. Part of what Christians have always done is alleviate suffering. In the Roman world, Christians were the first to open orphanages, hospitals, and care for the poor, even across faith lines. They didn't care. They'd take anybody in. One Roman emperor named Julian, the apostate, berated his own pagan high priest, saying, the Christians care for our poor better than we do, and they're winning the hearts of the masses because of it. We have always cared about the downtrodden since the day of our founder, the Christ, When Jesus came announcing, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand, he then proceeded not only to teach people, but to cast out demons, heal people, and feed them. He dealt with, number one, issues of the mind, number two, issues of the spirit, and number three, issues of the body. He taught, he cleansed, and he provided. The kingdom of God is about holistic resurrection, not just teaching right doctrine. Don't get me wrong, I'm passionate about right doctrine. I teach a theology class every Sunday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. and put people to sleep. I encourage you to be there, especially your parents who need to catch up on your sleep. But doctrine alone will not save you. It couldn't save the hypocritical Pharisees. It won't save us either. That's why we don't merely educate, but we pray for each other. And we just don't pray for each other, but we provide for each other. We give what we can do, uh, healing, food, clothing, housing, and more. When Jesus shows up as the Messiah, announcing the kingdom of God, he does all these things. He attends to matters of teaching, matters of the spirit, and matters of the body. Doctrine and dealing with the demonic and praying for healing and things like feeding the 5,000. He does it all. We're a church that wants to be involved in all of that because God isn't limited to this educational moment here on Sunday mornings. We care about what you think, What you feel and what you need. We have theology classes and counseling centers. We pray for healing and deliverance from demonic influences. We have initiatives like Serve Our City here locally to help the poor. We have initiatives across the globe like Project Rescue, which rescues women out of trafficking along with children, trains them in trades that they can employ so they never have to resort to prostitution again, and sets them back on their feet. That is what we do as a church. We do those things because that stuff is the kingdom of God along with good doctrine and I encourage you next month is missions month it's October whether you're online or here in person begin to pray God what do you want me to give beyond a tithe to a missions pledge whether it's a weekly gift a monthly gift whatever because that giving is part of what Jesus came to do we aim to do it because the church has always done it and that's what our founder Jesus did And so you see, suicide is an intersection of all of these things. It can feel overwhelming because you believe things about God and yourself, that's called doctrine. You feel things about the world and internally in yourself, that's spiritual. And you may even have imbalances in your body, biological imbalances that make the feeling intensify, and that's biology, that's physical, that's your body. It's an assault on mind, body, and spirit. So I would caution us against simplistic solutions when comforting someone with suicidal ideation. The solution is not as simple as more faith, more drugs, or more personal discipline. And like my friend, perhaps right now your friends need your support more than they need your advice. Some people have dealt with this issue all of their lives, some people for just a season, some people because of overwhelming circumstances, and some people because of no identifiable reason at all. Let me say this from the gate. If you're having these thoughts, it is not sinful. The last thing you need to be thinking is that I am heaping more shame on you. That is not what you need. My message for all of you, regardless of your sin or regardless of what you're struggling with internally, is this. Your life is valuable and worth living because Christ is raised and lives in you. And if you get nothing else from today, I hope you get that, that even if you're in the valley of the shadow of death that he's able to reach down there and prepare a place for you in the table of your enemies. Psalm 123 says, he will follow you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life and will prepare a place for you in his presence forever. Those promises are yours, even if you're struggling. And I encourage you to talk to us. You you may not be comfortable talking to me, but don't suffer alone. We have counseling services, clinical counseling services here that we supplement to help you afford them because we believe in this. Your life is valuable and worth living because Christ is raised and lives in you. And by examining a couple of scriptures today, I want to help shape our thinking on this subject and allow that to shape our hearts and our response towards those who are struggling. Okay, and we're going to do that through a number of questions. Number one, what is suicide? Number two, how should we think about suicide biblically? And number three, what should our response be to those who are struggling? Number one, what is it? Number two, how should we think about it biblically? And number three, how should we respond to people struggling with it? Okay, so let's pray, and we'll dive in. God, I am incapable of communicating what needs to be said, of shaping a heart or changing a mind only you, Holy Spirit, can do what needs to be done. Only you can give us the compassion for those around us, and only you can bind up our broken hearts and make them whole again, God. There, there is no counselor, there is no pastor, there is no author, there is no guru. There is nobody in all creation that can do what you can do. And so we do not stand here on our wisdom, God, but we ask you to come and you to establish your strength by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at question number one. What is suicide? Now, the answer is obvious. You might say, duh, Pastor Dylan, it's the intentional taking of one's own life, and you'd be right. However, I'm asking the question, what motivates it? Where does it come from? What's the motivating belief behind the action? A top medical journal in the United States surveyed those who attempted this and asked them why they did it. The top answer given was a desire to escape. To a lesser degree, there were other answers, uh, psychological, physical pain, feelings of being a burden, a lack of meaning in life. Now, there are certainly as many reasons as there are people. I'm careful here to recognize that one shouldn't paint with too broad a brush when it comes to this topic. But what all those options are communicating is a desire to escape, escape from meaninglessness, escape from pain, escape from being a burden. At the heart of this is the conviction that death would be preferable to the continued suffering of life. Suicide is the statement, I can't carry this anymore, it's too heavy for me. I recently wrote my first ever article for an academic journal, so by December I should be a published author, fingers crossed, if I'm not terrible, we'll see. Yeah, it's exciting, thank you. Bucket list item. Never going to write again, checked it off the list, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I helped do a, a research project on suicide for an article published in the journal called Mental Health, Religion, and Culture. I co-authored the article with a fairly, known, uh, fairly well-known scholar on suicide named Dr. Karen Mason at the head of the counseling program at Gordon-Conwell. I highly recommend you pick up her book, by the way, called Preaching Hope in Darkness. It was released in 2020. It was, has some really helpful tips, especially on how to talk to teenagers about suicide. It's called Preaching Hope in Darkness. In that book, she says this, Suicide is less about attention-seeking, selfishness, vengeance, or anger and more about escaping from pain. I know some of you have probably been hurt by someone who has done this, and I can empathize with you. I know that pain more than maybe I'm comfortable sharing with, today, with you here today. But in order to understand what suicide really is, we have to start with empathy, compassion, and sometimes forgiveness towards those who have wounded us in the process. The people who attempt it are so consumed by their own pain that sometimes they lose sight of you and your pain completely. As Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and that is not to please ourselves. Paul the Apostle is one of my favorite authors in the Bible because he did amazing things, but he was still weak and human like you and me. At one point in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that he despaired of life itself because of the suffering he was going through. So before we cast a stone, maybe at someone who's tired of living, perhaps we would do well to remember the man who wrote half the New Testament was so burdened by life that he didn't want to live it anymore. Sometimes we want to escape from life, and sometimes the enemy of our soul or our own biology intensifies that desire to the point that it leads us over the edge. Number one, what is suicide? Research and the scriptures tell us that it's often, not always, but often a desire to escape from life. Suicide is a desire to escape from emotional, mental, and sometimes even physical anguish. It is not necessarily a spiritual deficiency. Which leads me to the next question, number two. How should we think about suicide biblically? There was uh, a famous evangelist that I listened to a lot who was asked one day while he was on stage, do you think people who have uh, taken their own life go to hell? And he responded, no, I don't think so. But I wouldn't want to give an account of my life to the Lord after doing something like that. And I think there's wisdom there for us. We're told the only sin that is unforgivable is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which I don't have time to take to get into today. Take my theology class if you're interested and show up with an energy drink so you can pay attention. But suicide may very well be sinful. It is self-murder, but it isn't the unforgivable sin. That doesn't mean that God permits it or excuses it. And many of you may well say, well, doesn't forgiveness require repentance? And doesn't t- death take away that ability? You know, perhaps, but I'm not even sure that I'm aware of all the sins that I've committed. I do my best to repent of them, but I fail to notice my sins all the time, I'm sure. We are blinded to ourselves at times. You don't enter the kingdom of God by perfectly repenting, and you certainly don't enter heaven because of your good deeds, but because of Christ's work on your behalf. If the last thing I ever did on this earth was kick my cat, and scream at my wife, would I go to hell? Don't answer that, Monica. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Because I'm in Christ. I'm united with Christ. I'm in Him. Repentance is, a, is one time and ongoing. I'm not sinless, but I'm progressing and growing in this faith. If my last act, then, would be the sum total of my life, I wouldn't make it. But that is not the case in Jesus. My last act does not determine all of who I am. You don't lose your salvation and regain it every time you sin and confess. That is falsehood. So a life lived for Jesus that is ended because of one moment of despair is not a life that is necessarily lost forever. That doesn't mean it isn't sin or that God will not hold people accountable for how they've harmed themselves and others, but it does mean that there's hope for them the same way that there's hope for you. God will judge our sins, but it doesn't mean we're lost. Thinking biblically about suicide begins by acknowledging what the Bible does not say as much as it does about what the Bible does say. And if God's word doesn't condemn someone, then neither will I. There's hope for us all, including those of us whose last act on this earth was as tragic as taking our own life. Shakespeare opens the third act of Prince Hamlet with the famous line, to be or not to be, that is the question. The monologue that follows is Hamlet's attempt to answer the question, is it better to endure suffering or to end one's own life? And Hamlet, after much back and forth, fears the judgment of God and says, conscience makes cowards of us all. Though I'd seek here today to amend Hamlet's conclusion. Where agony would cause us to shrink back from this life, it ought to be courage and not cowardice that compels us to keep living it. Number two, how should we think about suicide biblically? We need to stop merely asking the question, is it sin? And begin asking the question, what is worth living for? Perhaps we're in the crisis in our nation that we are in our world because too many of us have been sold the lie that you can find enduring eternal happiness here on the shores of this life. You cannot, but you can find significance. You see, it's insufficient to identify what potholes we need to dodge on this road. We need to ask ourselves where this road is taking us. Proverbs chapter 29 says, where there is no vision, a people will perish. We need a reason to endure suffering and not just escape from it because it will come for us all. I'm less concerned with answering the question, is it sin? And I'm more concerned to identify what is worth living for. What is the kind of life that brings glory to God and joy to me? That's the question we need an answer to. Number two, how do you think about this biblically? By fixating less on what makes it wrong and searching the scriptures for what gives your life meaning, joy, and durability. Think about Elijah for a moment in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is trying to escape. He's recently had a great victory, but his life is being threatened by the queen, and he's running away. And in verse 4, Elijah prays this, O Lord, take away my life. But thank God he doesn't answer all of our prayers. To be or not to be was Elijah's question as well. God knows that what you face is too burdensome. And the angel comes to him and says, the journey is too great for you. That's the response to his prayer. And he tells Elijah, you need to sleep and eat. And he makes him do that over and over multiple times. By the way, that's one of the first things they do in a psychological treatment facility, sleep and eat. Because in anxiety and depression, you usually neglect yourself to the point where you're not doing that. So they give your base needs first. God gives him what he needs. And he acknowledges that the burden and the journey are too weighty. They're too much for Elijah. And he lets him rest for a while. God doesn't need you to burn yourself to ashes for him, by the way. Sometimes it's good to take a rest. And that's not because a rest is going to solve all of your problems. It will not. But it finally begins to help us stop working so that we can see our problem more clearly the way God sees it. And God begins to help Elijah by asking him a question that leads him into some self-discovery and some personal reflection. In the middle of the desert, God asks Elijah, why are you here, Elijah? And he responds to him, I've been jealous for you, Lord. That's another way of saying, I've lived for you, God, my whole life. And yet everyone who follows you, God, is getting killed. They're tearing down your altars, and I'm all alone. That's what he says to him in his prayer." He's been working for God for years. There's nothing to show for it. It's all misery and pain. He's been working for nothing, and he's all alone. And some of you may be feeling that way. You know what it's like to be consistent and faithful, working for what seems to be a lifetime and having so little to show for it that it seems like God has failed you. And God's response is not to fix what went wrong in the past, but he commissions Elijah for the future. By preparing him for three groups. Syria, Israel, and the prophets. He gives Elijah a life that's meaningful, joyful, and durable. He gives him work to do and number two, people to do it with. God has things for you to do. He's got hungry to feed, he's got hurting to heal, he's got families to love, he's got friends who need help, children who need protection and guidance, communities that need someone to serve them and take responsibility for them, churches that need teachers and and apostles and prophets and all sorts of servants. God needs you, and Elijah is told, go anoint two more kings. And by the way, when you're out there, train your successor, because I still need prophets in Israel. You see, we have the ability to invest in people, and research shows, along with the scriptures, that that is a factor that can protect us against the ravages of depression, because it doesn't cure it, but it it gives us a vision, an orientation, it gives us an objective, it gives us something to say, my life matters, and God is willing to give that to you here today. Northeast Christian Church, God has work for you to do. And the work is for the good of many if you will allow your pain to become a platform of service to others. That's what Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 1. With the comfort that I have received in my affliction, I give out to others. That's what he says right after he says, I've despaired of life. And if you'll do the work of that, it will be for the good of many. He reminds Elijah also, you are not alone. I have 7,000 people who are just like you. You see, we need other people. That's a source of great joy for our lives. Community clarifies our calling and gives strength to every single one of us. It shows us where we should be going and it helps us get there. Community is something we need to surround ourselves with because no person is an island. I was recently watching a show on Netflix with uh, my wife, Monica, called 100 Humans. It's an absolutely ridiculous, absurd show. I don't recommend it at all, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, They they do different experiments on people on all all sorts of topics. And I was watching an episode called How to Be Happy. And they tried to determine what makes people happiest, okay? They, They tried to incentivize them with money and humor and all sorts of different things. And it turns out that the answer is simple. We make each other happy. We can also make each other pretty miserable, but that's kind of besides my point here today. Okay, Elijah, you, and me, we all need to know that we're not alone. We need to know that our labor isn't in vain, that it's for other people, that it's going to benefit other people besides ourselves. My favorite book in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And in chapter four, it says, one person who has no other, either child or sibling, and there's no end to all his work. His eyes are never satisfied and he never stops to ask the question, for whom am I working in depriving myself of pleasure? That verse actually prompted me to get on dating apps where I've met my wife, by the way. So a little depressing, but it got me there, right? We need to know that we're not alone and that our work will outlive us and that we have other people in our lives working alongside of us, and that the work we're doing is going to help other people. We need that. God's given us a job to do that is so much bigger than your nine to five. You are not a bookkeeper. You are not a nurse. You are not an accountant. You are not a grocery store clerk. You are not these things. You are an ambassador for Christ in the areas where God has put you. That is a job title. Don't confuse vocation with calling. And all of you are called in Christ Jesus to make a difference in this world. God's given us a job to do. That's the calling we can all pursue in Jesus. It's a life worth living. It's one that's meaningful and joyful and durable because we can live it to glorify and magnify God. That means that you you bring God into focus for other people. When the Bible says that it means it's like you're not just like a microscope you're like a telescope bringing God into view for other people to see so that you can be a part of their redemption. That is the kind of life that every one of us get to live. We're light set on a hill. We're salt on the earth. We get to display God for other people to help be a part of their redemption. And from that place we can move from asking to be or not to be and say with the apostle paul my desire is to depart and be with christ for that is far better but To remain in the flesh is more necessary for all of you. That's Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Listen, it's okay to be dissatisfied with this life. In fact, it's a sign that you realize that this life is not the point. But this life is still worth living because Christ has sent you into it to be a part of the redemption of people in this broken world. We're here to comfort the downtrodden, help heal the broken. We're here to lift others with the comfort we've received out of our affliction. We get to give that out to others. And like Elijah and Paul, you may know that this life is not all it's cracked up to be and it's not your final reward. You're dissatisfied. But from that place, you can do tremendous good if you will allow your pain to become part of what God can use. You see, because that's what he did with the suffering of even his own son. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Jesus was made perfect through suffering, and so are we. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. Number two, how do you think about suicide biblically? Perhaps by looking through your pain and beyond it with the help of God to see joy, meaning, and endurance on the other side. Instead of asking, is it sin if I do it? Ask God to take your pain as an offering to help you and somehow even redeem it like he did the suffering of his own beloved son, Jesus. If you will put your heartache in the hands of God, there is no counselor on this earth. There is no pastor in all creation. There is no human being capable of binding up your broken heart, but God is the one who says, I dwell in eternity in the light, but I also dwell with them who are of broken and contrite heart. You are able... To lay hold of healing, no matter how far gone it seems, no matter how desperate your situation feels, no matter how hopeless and absolutely weary and tired you are, if you will turn it over to the Lord Jesus, like His own suffering, He is able to redeem yours if you'll trust Him. And it could even become a source of tremendous ministry and love to someone else. Your life is valuable and worth living because Christ is raised and lives in you. And that brings me to my last question. Number three, how should we respond to people struggling with suicidal thoughts? When we look at the Bible, we get a picture of overwhelming suffering. Disease, war, relational conflict, death, loss, murder, personal sins, And the list goes on and on. The Bible is not a happy book. It is a book of joy. And it is a book of hope. And there's a difference. Think of Job. When he loses everything, his wife tells him, just curse God and die. Give up. But he responds, shall I only accept what is good from the Lord and not trouble? In Job 2.9. Job hung on to the fact that God was still working in a way he couldn't understand. He clung to God instead of clinging to death as his relief. He said, there is no relief for me in death. There is only relief for me in God. I have more faith in Him than faith of my own ability to escape. I will not curse God and die. I will continue to ask God, to answer me, to speak to me, to help me. That's the kind of man that Job was, and God said, even though he said trouble was from God, that he did not sin with his lips. Because even if you feel trouble has come from God, if you turn yourself over to him, you will not be guilty of sin. You will find the deliverance of the Lord. Job's friends are a great example of what not to do. The whole book of Job is basically them trying to find out what Job did that was wrong and why this evil's happening to him. Perhaps we could learn from their mistake. Number three, how do you respond to people struggling in this way? Instead of trying to fix their problems or listen to me, interpret their problems, the mere connection of your presence is probably all they need right now. The uncomfortable truth is that you are incapable of fixing anyone's issues. We are powerless and incapable. I'm training to become a therapist right now, and what I've heard time and time again from my professors, who are all licensed psychologists and Christians, is that you cannot solve anyone's problems. But that's what we jump to, isn't it? We try to understand them, interpret them, provide a packaged solution to them. The only true healer of the human heart is the Holy Spirit. Bar none, there is no other way that God alone can bind up what has been broken only he can empower you to do any real good in the life of somebody else and listen there are practical ways that you can help other people don't get me wrong but first and foremost you and I need to understand that our aim should never be to fix someone but to support and love them if they experience the desire to take their life for the rest of their life we can't take that desire away Just like our own bodies, sometimes our minds remain wounded throughout the time of our exile here on earth. But when we enter the kingdom of God fully and finally, there will no longer be any death nor tears and we will be healed. But until that day, our bodies decay and sometimes even our minds do. But we can pray that the Holy Spirit would help us and allow us to help other of the others around us who are weaker perhaps than we are because God has not given you strength for yourself. He has given you strength for those who are around you. So don't hoard it and don't dem- Demand others rise to your bar. Instead, stoop down like God did to theirs and help them up. You are responsible because the Spirit of Jesus is in you to stoop and lift, not demand that somebody keep up with your ability, your pace, your discipline, and your level of well-being. But until that day, we pray, Holy Spirit, help us. Remind them, those struggling, That the brokenness of life does not negate its beauty. John says in chapter 1, verse 5, that the light still shines into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. You have confidence that goodness wins in the end. So do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Remind them, that there is a hope and a future they can live for. The Bible is replete with examples of men and women who despaired of life itself, and yet God delivered them. Remind them of people like Joseph, of Hagar, of of Ruth, of Job, of Elijah, of Moses, of Daniel, of Jeremiah, of Peter, and of Jesus Christ himself, who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and yet experienced the resurrection of the dead? Remind them that there is hope, and that they can experience deliverance. In the same way that people hear experience deliverance. We are not a church that believes that this is ended, but that this continues and lives and breathes in you and I, and we are a part of the ongoing mission of God, the redemption of the world. There is no difference between you and Joseph. There is no difference between you and Rahab or you and Jeremiah. You have the same spirit, the Bible said, who raised Christ from the dead. What What can stand against you? What can stand in your way? You have the ability to help others, maybe not fully, maybe not finally, but the Spirit of God within you can give meaning, joy, and durability back to your life. You don't have to be a counselor to give hope and encouragement to a weary soul. When you're trying to help someone, remember, number one, pray for the Holy Spirit to assist him that, that apart from him you can do nothing. But number two, recognize your own limitations. Listen, it's okay to not know. We don't have to be experts to be helpful. In fact, we should be okay with our limitations because God is unlimited and you are limited by design. So when you're trying to help someone, alleviate yourself of the responsibility that you can solve their problems. You can't. I've had to learn that so many times as a, as, as a pastor. I've only been here seven short years and I can tell you the calls I've gotten at night where I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. I have no idea what to say. There are no words in the English language or any other language under God's sky in heaven that can communicate what this person needs for their life. But God can speak in a moment what it would take man an eternity to say. And he can bind up a broken heart in ways that you can't. And your greatest ally is the Holy Spirit in prayer with a recognition of your own limitations. Don't try to be somebody's counselor just be their sister, their brother, their friend, their ally. And lastly, number three, help them take steps. Take them to the grocery store. Take them out to eat. Spend time around people, you know what, that maybe you usually wouldn't have because maybe they don't measure up to your social abilities or Or maybe their their cleanliness isn't exactly where yours is at. You know what? It doesn't matter. Spend time with those who others won't and embrace them because God has embraced you in spite of the stench of your own sin and has chosen to redeem you in spite of it. He said, I have loved them and I have set my seal on them and you have the ability to do that for others. Jesus said, don't just invite those to your feasts who are capable of paying you back, but invite those who have nothing to give, who cannot return it and you will lend to your maker you can help those who need help you know what practical way to help pick up the phone call their insurance company with them see what counselors their insurance will cover Take them to the grocery store, pay for half their groceries, learn them to budget a little bit more. You can do responsible things to help people who don't have enough strength left to pick themselves up, because you need one another, and sometimes the Holy Spirit has placed the strength in you that the person besides you needs, and if you fail to employ it, what other hope do they have? We need each other. And the Holy Spirit has deposited in you what the church needs. It says, we are a body, and none of us can say to one part, I have no need of you. Listen, I may have a real good mouth. You might be able to tell. That's why I like to debate as a kid, all right? But you might have the feet and the hands that are actually going to make a difference in this world. You have a part of the Holy Spirit that I do not have, and that is for the good of the body, so exercise it. Do practical things. Today in my next class, somebody said they have the spiritual gift of administration, which it says that in Romans Uh, uh, chapter 12, but I hate spreadsheets. If it wasn't for Monica, my life would still be a disorganized mess. I'm grateful to God for people who function that way. Maybe the people around you need your help too. You can do practical things for them. And by doing practical things in submission to the Holy Spirit by prayer, you can begin to maybe not change the world, but change somebody's world and maybe help them rise out of ashes and darkness and find redemption. I'm going to invite the worship team back at this time. You know, as they come, I debated whether to share this or not. Um, I asked his permission before I do. But uh, my dad, when I was about 15 years old, was, uh, he told me later in my life was going to commit suicide. And he had finished a, a bottle of, of uh, vodka and taken a couple pills and he had something beside him to take his life. And as he sat there, he threw up one last desperate prayer. said, God, please help me. And it gave him the strength to reach for the phone instead of reach for the other thing. And in that moment, he called a, a Christian counselor to begin to help him. His insurance covered it. He was homeless at the time. He had nothing. He had lost me and my brother. He had lost his marriage. He had lost his job. He had lost his health. He literally was living in a trailer with nothing. And I'm so glad that my dad reached out. You have no idea the hole that you would leave. It would be unfillable. And in the time, from me being 15 to now being 29, in that span of time, my dad has gone from being homeless to being a homeowner, almost completely paid off. He's made leaps and strides. He's on his church worship team. He's diligently at church. He he gives to others. He he knows how to minister out of his pain. He's he's been transformed. And most of all, I I got to see my dad give a speech at my wedding. And, yeah. You don't know. Whose life will be better because you're in it? You don't know the mind of God and what He's put within you that others around you may need. And you might not be able to estimate your own value right now, but leave that to God and the people around you, and you will find it. Do not give up hope. I know the burden's heavy for some of you, I know how it might affect your family. I know that sometimes your pain is so overwhelming that you can't think of anything else. The last thing you need is shame. But what I want to let you know is here today is deliverance. That you are able, I don't care if you struggle every day for the rest of your life, fight. Because every day of struggle is better than every day not here. And it is better for others that you remain, even if it doesn't feel like it. And I promise you will find better relief in the presence and arms of God than you will find in the release of death. You will find greater blessing, peace, and joy in life than you will in its absence. The Holy Spirit is able to bind up what you've thought your whole life, nobody else could no counselor could, no therapist is able to no pastor or psychologist no other human being has been able to understand the pain that you have endured God does and he lost his own son that we might live our life for his life so choose life and I'm going to invite you to stand and in this last song of worship Listen, this is a very sensitive message. I'm not asking you to flood these altars. I don't know what your issues are, whether it's suicide or some other issue. Life can be overwhelming. But God is able to do what no man can do. And the Holy Spirit is able to meet the need that no man can meet. And so I encourage you to sing this song as a release. To say, God, I need your help and I'm here. God, speak to me. Help me. Deliver me. And he will. And I pray that you'll give speeches at your children and grandchildren's weddings. I prophesy over you that you will live and not die. That you will be the head and not the tail. That you will see life and you shall see the Lord in the land of the living. And that goodness and and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's worship.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for service today. To rewatch today's sermon, you can search for it on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcast. And again, to keep up with all that's going on here at the church, you can go on lolig.org or ne-cc.org. Thank you again and have a great day.